Let's go ahead and bow in prayer as we open the word. We're going to be in the Gospel of John today. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your death on the cross and why you had to die. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought uh, for a while and considered saying in Luke for the day, but I decided we're going to talk about the, the death of Jesus, why, and then next week, of course, there was resurrection. Can't go on Resurrection Sunday without talking about the resurrection. So John chapter 20. How about 19? I'm going to read the first five verses, then jump to 23. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a robe, a purple robe, and said, Hail the King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. And Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth unto you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the, and the purple. And Pilate said unto him, Behold your king. Then the priest, chief priest thereof, and the officers saw him, they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto him, Take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And dropping down to 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and, to, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. And they said among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, and that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which said, And they parted my garment among them, and for my vestures they did cast lots. Thus these things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood in the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, and her the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold your son, and said unto his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled the sponge with vinegar and put it on upon a hyssop and put it on his mouth. And Jesus therefore received the vinegar and said it is finished and bowed his head and gave up the ghost I just want to talk about this uh, as we look at God's word and just think about this why did Jesus have to go to the cross and that's asked by lots of people why you know, uh, and the answer to that is because of the holiness of God in all God could not just forgive sins without payment being made for them. And Jesus, in Revelation, we're told, was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And we've talked about this before. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together before they even created all things, got together, said, we're going to create man, they're going to fall. And Jesus, will you redeem them? Will you die for them? And Jesus said yes. And at that moment, he was the lamb slain for our sin. And we hadn't even been created yet. And yet the father said he had been slain. So he had to pay the price for our sin. Because sin has a cost. Sin is, brings death. First it brings separation from God. Then it brings death. And we have to go through all of these things. And Jesus at the cross went through all of this. The reason I read the first part was because Jesus first part of the trial was to be scourged and to be mocked 
you know, and we don't really think too much of the scourging all that much, but you know, the scourging is they took the Roman flagellum, seven to 11 throngs on the end of this thing, weighted down and beat him with it. And this flagellum literally cut into the skin and removed chunks of flesh out of it. And these Roman guards, they loved it. It was a game to them to see who could take out the biggest chunk of meat with each blow. And they would take wagers among themselves at who was going to get the best, the best hit. And we go, that's horrible. Why? He did that for us. We deserve punishment for our sins. And Jesus took that punishment. He took the mocking of these guards. They dressed him up in a purple robe of a, of a royal they, they gave him a crown of thorns and we're talking when we're talking about thorns they say that those thorns were in, anywhere from an inch to three inches long and pressed it down on his head to draw blood they beat him with their feasts feast their, their fists <laughs> gonna have a long day today I can't even talk beat him with his their fists scourged him and literally he should have died even before he went to the cross. But the pain and suffering. Isaiah 53 says they did, that he was not even recognizable as a man when they got done with him because of the beating that he had taken. He carries the cross and it tells us in, in the other gospels that he stumbled and fell as he's carrying the cross to, 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 uh, to uh, Calvary. He was totally bruised. Now, you'll hear a lot of preachers tell you, well, he had 39, 39 lashes from this, this uh, flagellum. Well, that would be true if he was beat by the temple guard. The Jews gave you, uh, gave you a, a punishment of 40 lashes, and out of, out of mercy, they gave you only 39. The only problem was, Pilate and the Romans are the ones doing this beating. They have only one instruction. Don't kill the guy that you're beating. So they could beat him as long as they wanted, as long as he didn't die. Why did he go through this? Because Jesus was our propitiation. And we've talked about this. That's a very big word, but it means that he took the entire anger of God against sin on his body. All of the anger. All the anger for the trillions of people that have lived on this world from the beginning of time till now. Jesus took God's anger for sin on his body to be punished. You know, people all the time will ask, well, who, who crucified Jesus? And, you know, the bottom line answer is the Father did. Because the Father needed the punishment to be paid for sin. And it took a perfect lamb to be the sacrifice. If any of us could have paid any part of our sin, then Jesus died for no reason. But because we cannot pay for our own sin, Jesus had to take all that punishment. And he took it for the entire population of the world. He became the one that took that punishment upon himself to satisfy a righteous father's demands. God cannot just say, uh, forgive sin and, and be done with it. Just as if somebody went to court and the, and the judge says, I know you're guilty. I know that you deserve to go to, go to prison for the rest of your life. I'm, I'd let you go. Everybody would look at that judge and say, you don't know what you're doing. You're not a good judge. 
God is a good judge who demands punishment for sin. And Jesus had to be the only one that could take that punishment because he was the only one who in this life has ever lived a life of a human being and was perfect. Now Adam and Eve were created perfect, but it didn't take them long to fall into sin. They ate the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and immediately they were separated from God, which was spiritual death, and then they were separated by dying physically by the end of their life. Granted, they lived to be 900-something, but they, they still died. The wages of sin was death. The wages of sin was not only death on humanity, but it turned our world upside down. We have storms and death and violence all through creation. That was not the way this world was created. And yet, that was the result of man's sin. The world itself was turned upside down. It waits for its redemption as well. It waits for its renewal. Jesus took this punishment. And you know, I think about this so much. The God of heaven was being beat by man in punishment. I think it would, you know, I know that I probably, knowing that I had the power to end it, wouldn't, you know, how much love he had for us to not call and say, Father, send the angels down here and deliver me. Or, or for that matter, he didn't even have to go to the Father. He could have just said, uh, they no longer exist. He could have ended it with a thought. I picture the angels, because remember that when Satan tempted Jesus, he said, the angels have care over you. You can't even dash your foot without them protecting you. I can picture the angels just straining Looking to the Father to say, when are you going to let us, you know, how can you put up with this? How can you let him be beat by those insignificant human beings down there? And the Father saying, nope, this was the plan. This was the plan. That's why he went down there, to pay for the sins of the people. And all of heaven outside of the Father's, like, what's going on? All of mankind, what is going on? On the cross, they were going, you know, they, the people were going, if he said he was the son of God, he said that he was the king, let him come down if he was so, so great. They're mocking him on the cross. One of, one of the things that we hate so much as Christians is to be mocked, to be made fun of. Jesus knows what it means to be mocked, made fun of. He knows what it is to be made fun of. The, when he was ministering so many times, the Sanhedrin and the scribes and the Pharisees would come up to them. And what was their accusation? Many times they go, well, we know who our parents are and you don't know who your parents are. What did they know? They knew that Mary was, gave birth out before she was, had consummated her marriage. They knew that as far as they were concerned, he was a child of fornication. They made fun of him all the time. They accused him all the time. They put him on trial and accused him and, and convicted him falsely. He knows what it means to have everything go wrong, seemingly. And you all know my favorite verse is Romans 8, 28, for, for all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. How could Jesus go through all of this? Because he knew the reason he was there. He knew why he had to be mocked. He knew why he had to be scourged. He knew why he was going to the cross. 
He also knew, and he'd already told the disciples over and over again, in three days, I'm going to come back. He knew that this death was not final. Now, did that make it any easier to go through? No. Knowing that God has a plan, knowing that things are going to work out for good, does not make it easier to go through the trial. It just gives us a hope while we're going through the trial. And I know that many of you are like me. I've gone through so many trials where you're in the middle of that trial and it looks like there is no hope. You know, God, how can any of this ever be good? And if you haven't been there, you will. <laughs> I'm sure everybody in this room has been there at some point. But if you haven't been, you will be. If you trust God, you will get to the place where you're looking to the end. But Jesus was ready because he knew the hope. He knew that he had to go through this so that we could be redeemed from sin and be able to accept that gift of the, of the gave. On the cross, Jesus said only a couple things that are recorded. And I'm just going to give you these real quick. I'm not going to go to every one of them. In Luke 23, 34, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, I know every one of us, that would be the first thing in our mouth when they beat us and with a flagellum and they've nailed us to a cross and the very first thing we're going to be thinking is forgive them. It should be the first thing we think of, but I know that it's not. It is hard to come up with forgive them. Stephen did it when he was being stoned by the people. Father, do not tr charge this transgression to, their, to them. Forgive them. It can be done. If you read Fox's book of martyr, many of the martyrs said forgive them. Forgive them. It can be done. In Luke 23, 43, he said, Today you will be with me in paradise, talking to the thief that's next to him. And he says, Forgive me. And Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. That is our great hope. When we die, we get to go to heaven. If you're saved. If you're not saved, you don't want to think about where you're going. You're going to hell if you're not saved. But it's very important. Then he looked down in uh, John 19, 26, and he said to John, you know, to his mother Mary, behold your son, and to John, this is now your mother. He was on the cross in pain, in suffering, thinking about his mom. In a day without people being taken care of, uh, without family, and he says, John, you take, care of, you take care of my mom. She's now yours. It is a beautiful thing that God tells us to take care of one another. In Matthew 27, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken, forsaken me? This is a picture of a, the promise that he was going, the pro prophecy. And I've heard all kinds of people t talk about this. You know, I've heard over the years preachers trying to give this idea that Jesus wasn't forsaken. You know what? He had become sin. He was forsaken. One of the penalties for sin is that God must be separate from us. And I've told you all that this one is the most amazing thing to me. The greatest pain that Jesus went through in all of the cross, the beating in the cross, was not the beating, was not the, the being nailed to the cross. It was for the first time in all of eternity, the Father and the Holy Spirit turned their back on him. And their perfect fellowship was ripped apart. Now, we do not really know what that means to have that taken apart. 
You know, the closest thing we can think of is somebody who's been married or known somebody for a really, really long time and they're really close and then they get their partner ripped away. That is about as close as we can come with this feeling. Second one might be your first love that you fell so deeply for and you pined for months, you know, weeks or months after it broke up. But neither of those even come close to what Jesus had to feel on the cross when the Father turned his back on him because he became sin. He had become sin. He took all the sin of the world upon him and the Father turned his back on him. From that point on the cross onward, Jesus was on his own. If you read through the Gospels, every day Jesus went every morning and prayed to the Father. He communicated with the Father. He talked with the Father. And for this brief period of time on the cross, he does not have connection with the Father and cannot get back with him because the Father looked at him and said, I cannot fellowship with this. You know, we know that God knows all things, that Jesus knows all things, and I wonder how did he know what it was going to be like to have to separate himself from somebody he'd never been separated from. But we know that he knows all things. Then in John 19, 28, we read that. It says, I thirst. He got thirsty. And they put the sponge on, the, on his lips. And it says in the gospel that he refused to drink it because on that was also hyssop, which was a medication to make it less, less painful to him. Then in John 19, 30, he said, it is finished. And I'm going to come back to this one in just a moment. And his last thing he said, is, recorded in Luke 23, is I commend my spirit... To you. He died. He was only on the cross for about three hours. Now we think, well, that's a long time to be hanging on a cross. Well, that is true. It probably is a long time to be hanging on a cross. But most people did not die of crucifixion for three to seven days. It was a long, horrific, painful death. And Jesus died within three hours because of all that he went through. And I think most of it was just the idea of all that sin being dumped on him, on a pure and holy body that God had separated from. You go, well, Pastor, why are we going through all of this painful, ugly stuff? Is because it is something that we need to understand. Our salvation cost God a lot. It cost Jesus everything. He literally dies. The Father and the Spirit, it cost them because they were separated from a piece of themselves. It cost the Godhead everything for our salvation. We cannot take our salvation cheaply. The, the one last part I'm going to bring into this is the word in this thing, it is finished. You know, Jesus is scourged for our punishment. He's hung on the cross for our punishment. He's forsaken by God for our punishment. And he, just before he dies, he said, it is finished. Telestai is what he said. Now, telestai is what they put at the bottom of a bill when it was paid off. It meant paid in full. Jesus on the cross was telling and reminding the Father and anybody else listening, sin is paid in full. This is a beautiful thing for us to be able to understand. You know, he paid all 
for us. Not part of our sins, not most of our sins. He paid all of our sin. For grace, for by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Another one of us that are Christian, we understand that verse really well, and we're glad for God's grace. Because we know that we don't deserve, we don't deserve God. We don't deserve his forgiveness. But you know, one of the things that really bothers me that uh, I fall into, and I know most people fall into, once we get saved, how often do we forget that it's by grace? We start trying to figure out, well, what can I do to earn my salvation? What can I do to make God pleased with me? He's already pleased with us. If you have accepted the gift of Christ, sacrifice as your personal savior and you've repented of your sins God has done great things for you the very first thing he's done is he has justified you and another one of those big words but justified means that he declares us from the courts of heaven perfect do you realize that when God looks at you what he sees is perfection if you're in Jesus Christ he is not looking down and saying well how much good have they done no they haven't done enough good no 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 he is looking down and said, if we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, he says, you are perfectly perfect. You have been declared perfect in court. You know, for us, it would be the idea if you go into a bankruptcy court, you owe hundreds of thousands of dollars. You go into bankruptcy court and you owe a lot of people and the judge hits the gavel and says, you don't owe anybody. That's exactly what God has done in the courts of heaven, but not that it has not been paid, but he says, Jesus paid it, you don't owe it. And he then clothes us in the righteousness of Christ and deals with us in that state. And you go, well, how can God deal with us in that state? Because he's outside of time. As soon as you accept Jesus Christ, God deals with you as you will be. <laughs> because he knows what you will be. Because he's already there talking to you in your perfected, perfected being. Because the next state that he's going to do is when we start living our life, he's going to sanctify us. He's going to make us more of what he said we are. And then one day we will die. You know, that may shock some people. Every one of us is going to die. 100% correlation. Everybody who is born will die. Unless we have the rapture interrupt that, but then that would still be the same, same equivalent. God takes us out from this world. One day we will die, and if you're in Jesus Christ, you will be glorified, and God will make you who he said you were in the beginning and how he's been dealing with you in your entire sanctification process. This is a hard concept for us to understand because God is outside of time, and he is looking at that. You know, Jesus said that there was one unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit's job is to bring people to Christ. When people stand before God, they will stand either clothed in Jesus Christ's righteousness or their own righteousness. And I can picture at the white throne judgment, because when you witness to people, you know, you'll hear people who just say, well, I hope I'm good enough to, to make God happy. I hope I'm good enough to go into heaven. Well, the answer is very simple. According to Isaiah, the answer is absolutely not, because your own righteousness is filthy rags. At the white throne judgment, and only sinner, only the lost are standing at the white throne judgment, they're going to get to go up there and say, God, look at all the good things that I do as they look down at their filthy rags. 
and realize that for the first time they're going to realize that they are not good enough to enter into heaven. And they're going to be rejected because they do not have the righteousness of Christ. We as Christians have accepted Jesus' sacrifice. We are clothed in his righteousness. So when we stand before God, he looks down at it and says, here's my perfect child. Look at this beautiful garment that they're wearing. Because what does he see? He sees Jesus Christ. And we get to go to heaven because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not because I've done anything good, not because I've done anything bad, and it doesn't matter what I have done. And as Paul said, you know, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And he anticipated everybody's question, well, if that's true, then, then Paul, we should just go out and sin a lot. And he said, God forbid. Grace costs so much that we should not be looking at reasons to make God give us more grace. He has given us so much grace that we can't even fathom the grace that he's given us already. If you can go out and purposely sin so that God can give you more grace, then you have to look at your relationship with God and say, God, do I really know you? Do I really know what you did for me? Do I really know and, and have you in me? His gift to us was his death, burial, and his resurrection, which we'll talk about next week, but he did not stay in the grave. He paid the, the physical payment that we needed. He paid the spiritual payment that we needed. And then he resurrected from the grave to be victorious over death, which is where we have the long, long look at death is not the end for us. Oh, death, where is your sting? <laughs> you know, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So as soon as our body decides it doesn't want to operate anymore, our spirit goes immediately into the presence of God, and we get to start our life in the new realm. And don't ever think that death is the beginning of eternal life. Eternal life started the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is when eternal life started. And if you have never known God, you don't understand that. But if you know God, you understand. Life comes into your body when you accept him as your, as your Savior. And you get to walk with God from that moment on. Now I'm looking forward to the day when this flesh and this world do not interfere with my walk in God. And that I am made perfect with no limitations on it, no temptations, no struggles, no falls. I'm looking forward to the day when I don't forget everything that God has taught me. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll remember people's names <laughs> you know, and not forget them. When I'll quit forgetting all the stuff that I've learned in the past. I'm looking forward to that. But you know, God made us new. We came into him and said, God, I am a sinner. I deserve punishment. I accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Come into my life and save me. And he did it. As long as you meant it. Now just saying the words is not what gets you saved. But to mean and believe, be persuaded that Jesus is the only way. The, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He is the only way to heaven. And people go, well, that's awful narrow. Yes, it is. You know, one of the things you can do when people, you know, try to argue with you and, and accuse you of something, if it's a valid, if it's a valid argument, agree with them. When they tell us that God is narrow, yes, he's absolutely narrow. He has one way. When they tell us as Christians that we are are 
too rigid and intolerant because we won't accept that their way is good. I have to believe what God says, and I'm going to say, you're absolutely right. When I went to college a second time, people used to go, well, you're intolerant. I go, yes, I know. Uh, I know I'm going to agree with God. If that makes me intolerant by your desires, then that's true. Now, I fully believe that everybody has the right to be wrong. You know, they have the right to be wrong. They have the right to go to hell if they want to. But that does not mean that I'm going to say that their, their unbelief is correct. I'm going to respect them, but I'm going to tell them what God says. And we can tell people what God says without being disrespectful, without being attacking. We just say, this is what God says. Well, you're judging me. No, I'm just telling you what God says. You have your right to be wrong. And this is important for us. We are to love each person. One of the statements that is made all the time in, in, around Christians is that we are to love the sinner and hate the sin. Now that is hard to do from the world's perspective because they do not separate the sin or the activity from the person. You are not a person who steals. You are a thief. That is your identity. You're not, there's no separation between the two in their mindset. We as Christians understand that there's a person who has a sinful activity that God wants to deal with. And this goes with any sin that you can think of. Somebody who is into adultery, you know, the world will say, well, they're the same. We know that there's a person and the sin that they're committing. Now, there's consequences for those sins, but we understand that there's a difference between the person and what they do. And the world does not recognize that. They do not understand when we say love the sinner and hate the sin because they don't separate the two. In their mindset, they cannot separate the two. When I'm out of, my, out of the prison talking to some of those uh, counselors and, and everybody with their degrees and everything and counseling, they don't understand how you can separate. They want to change people's thinking so they can change who they are and be instead of changing what they do, which means they're going to fail in the long run because they're not attacking the right process. We have to get saved so that we can become a new creation in Christ and be somebody totally different because it's God who does the changing, not us. This is why when people get saved, you, you can, you know, I don't know how many people you've ever looked at that just gotten saved and you can just look at them sometime and know they're different. They're new. There's something different about them. It doesn't happen every single time, but I've seen a lot of people when I'm looking, I'm going, I know this person got saved. I can, I can see that they're different. doesn't mean they're perfect yet, but it means I can see God making that change in them. So for each of us here today, we need to be in a place where we understand, number one, how much our salvation cost. It costs so much, and sometimes we forget about that. That's the one thing I do like about this time of the year as we come into resurrection is we get to really think about the cost of our salvation. Barnhouse said that we have a, many Christians have a cheap grace. We just figured it didn't cost God anything. It cost God so much. And we need to really think about the cost of our salvation. And what does this mean for us as Christians? First off, that we need to really recognize it and start working for God, sharing with God. But it also means that we need to look and say, how many lost people do we know that need Christ? Almost all of us probably have a family member or two that are not saved. And I'm not saying talk to them about God and the salvation and that they're going to hell every single time you talk to them, but have you talked to each member of your family that's not saved? 
at least once, maybe once a year. You know, this is an important decision because if they do not get saved before they die, they will spend eternity in hell. Beyond our family, how many of us have friends that we've invested lots of time in them being a good friend, but we've never talked to them about Jesus? Now, I hope that nobody in this room has that, has that, but I'm sure there are people out there that you have not talked to about Jesus. Are they really a friend? Do you want to see them go to hell? You go, well, if I tell them about Jesus, they might not be my friend anymore. You know what? I would rather lose a friend because I told them about Jesus in this world than to have them go to hell and be their friend all, you know, for this period of time. And again, I'm not saying every time you see them, you talk to them about Jesus and that, but, you know, and you know I'm challenging you. How quick does God come into your conversations? Out of my other job at the prison, people know that one thing is true. They start talking to me any length of time, and we're going to talk about God. Why? It's not because I'm a pastor. <laughs> I have always been this way. <laughs> when I was managing, long before I got a pastor, I used to love going in on Monday morning. You know what God did to me? Did for me last last uh, over the weekend. How important is God to you? Do you do you talk about Him? Does He come into your conversations? It is pretty easy to know what's important to people. You meet, a, you meet a football fanatic like I used to be, and you're going to hear all about football. Their favorite team, their favorite thing. You get a hockey fan, they're going to talk about their hockey team. You get a NASCAR fan, they're going to talk about your next race, when it's coming up. Uh, you get into somebody who's very much into stamps or sewing or, or coin collecting, and they're going to tell you all about the newest stamp, the newest coin they collected. Do we get that excited about God? Is he on the forefront of our mind, or is he an afterthought on everything that we do? Now, do people know that you love God? And I'm not using this as an attack, but to really think about how important is God to you as you go through your day, as you go through this. So I want to challenge us to start thinking about people that need to hear about Jesus around us, in our life, in our family, amongst our friends. Purpose to share with them. At the very least, grab a bunch of the tracks and give them a track. <laughs> if you're afraid to talk to them, give them a track. Let the track do the talking to them. But I think we need to get to the place where we open our mouth once in a while and we start sharing the gospel message because people need to hear God's word. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us, that you paid such a heavy price for our sins. Lord, put that burden on our hearts so that we will share you with others. Lord, and if there's anybody listening online or even in this room that doesn't know you, that we ask today that they would come before you and admit, Lord, I am a sinner. I deserve punishment. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I repent of my sins. I turn away from my sins. Come into me and give me that new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. 
In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.